Oliver Berkman, welcome. Thank you. Thanks very much for asking me. So you have this great line in your book that goes, this is the maddening truth about time, which most advice on managing time seems to miss. It's like an obstreperous toddler. The more you struggle to control it, to make it conform to your agenda, the further it slips from your control. Now, I want to dive into kind of what you mean there, because I think um, in a lot of ways, that's you could almost say that's sort of the thesis statement for the for the whole thing. But but before right. we do, l- let me ask you a, a question about kids, um, which is, <laughs> let's say a uh, you know a reasonably bright six year old um, asked you what time management meant. They heard an, an adult talking about time management. How would you explain to a six year old what time management is? It's a question that really puts me on the spot because it makes you see that there is something utterly absurd about the idea of trying to manage time. And we can come to that when we get deeper. What would I actually say? Well, I have a four-year-old uh, who's about to be five and he's pretty bright. So it's not a million miles from uh, okay. from that. He's slightly confused about the fact that I've written this book, but there appear to be multiple copies of it. He doesn't quite figure out that they're all the same book. Um, I would say something like it, it's about uh, deciding which things are the most important things to do and trying to make sure that you uh, get some of them done, I suppose. Hmm. Yeah, I like it. That's straightforward. I think a, I think a four or five, six-year-old would definitely would definitely grasp that. One of the things that it, it makes me, it's one of these questions I like to ask, you know, in different formats to, to different people, but it, it, in this question in particular, it, it gets at this, like the, the multiple layers of the, of the idea of time management. As you talk about, there's kind of the colloquial productivity, you know, how can we be more efficient with our, get more stuff done in, in X amount of time. Um, but then it, it also forces you to consider, do you go a little more existential like, like your book does and, and try to, uh, you know, explain that to a, to a four-year-old, which, which you kind of did, right? The, the most important thing. So talk about that. Cause you, like, like you, you went out of your way to emphasize that, that it's about the most important things. Yeah, I guess what I'm, I guess that was my attempt in the sort of speaking to a six-year-old vein to sort of really insist on this idea that like there's there's a sort of ultimate time management problem here which is that we are finite human beings uh finite in i think two crucial senses both the limited amount of time that we have and the sort of limited control that we have over how that time unfolds which includes things like our ability to predict and plan for the future which is all central to you know what we think of as time management um and and it really is like it's so important that in a way it's kind of like the only challenge in life, right? If you if you understand time management broadly enough, what, what else is there? Um, but yes, as you hint, I think a lot of the genre and the way we think about that phrase is the exact opposite. It's a very sort of narrow and sometimes rather superficial approach. And I think one of the things I'm trying to unpack, I think, in the book is just that if you pursue these tactics and techniques and systems for becoming more efficient in the absence of some understanding of of the 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 big human existential time management problem uh, they're not going to be effective they're actually going to make things worse because you're not going to be sort of dealing with the stakes of the situation that you're really in Uh, so i think that uh, you know that just that idea of things that matter things that count um, i think it's incredibly important and i sort of use phrases of that variety uh, many many times in the book because otherwise it's incredibly easy for these efficiency techniques to just become their their own justification like you know i want to be completely on top of my email and completely on top of my task lists 
just for the sake of being on top of my email and my task list. But there's there's got to be a bigger point than that uh, to answering an email or doing a task. <laughs> yeah, you know, an interesting, um, again, kind of layer of the of your argument as I read it in the book is it's not just that this, um, this narrow uh, kind of productivity hacky approach to time management doesn't work or like, you know, turns out it isn't actually productive. You, you kind of take a, a layer deeper and you, another kind of nice uh, turn of phrase you have is the trouble with attempting to master your time, it turns out is that time ends up mastering you. So it's, it's, it's a subtle like nuance, but it's not just that trying to manage time doesn't work. It's, it's almost that it ends up backfiring. Um, so, right. and, and even making you worse off. So to, to get kind of specific, can you, can you think of a like a specific example from from your life maybe where you've fallen into that trap of trying to manage time only to have it kind of backfire and not only not work but leave you worse off than you were before? Well, the really obvious example that springs to mind is the thing that I've called in various places the importance trap, which was this sensation, and I've since written about it and understand that lots of other people resonate with it. This 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 notion that as I got really deep into kind of productivity geekhood and I came I became very good at processing large quantities of tasks, there was this kind of seemingly systematic phenomenon whereby the tasks that I got around to doing were precisely the ones that didn't really matter. And the ones that I did really care about in a professional context, in a personal context, whatever, were the ones that I didn't do and you know when you drill down into this it begins to seem clear what's going on you, you know if you if you value something um as a thing to do with your life first of all you tell yourself that you need lots of time and attention for it so you don't want to do it on a day when you're feeling overwhelmed with lots of little uh you know smaller chores you want to get them all out of the way first but of course the problem is we live in a world of infinite inputs right so if you're trying to deal with all the little stuff that could uh come across your desk it, it's going to never end because there's an infinite amount of stuff that comes across your desk moreover dealing with a lot of it actually generates more of it the obvious example here being email you know if you if you neglect an email if you can afford to do that with a given email then it goes away but if you reply to it you'll definitely get a reply and you'll probably have to reply to that reply and so on and so on um and you'll get a reputation as being somebody who's uh, really good at responding to email. So more people in the office or wherever will, will consider it worth their while to email you. It's this famous old observation that the reward for good time management is more work. Um, <laughs> if you sort of build a perfectly optimized personal system, it will naturally attract more inputs until it's overwhelmed again. You know, it's the same thing when they when they widen highways to get to deal with traffic congestion and it attracts more cars. So the congestion is as bad as it ever was. Um, it's the same kind of basic pathology of efficiency if it's pursued in the absence of some more meaningful goal that enables you to sort of make tough choices between things. What I realized I had to do in this case where I would sort of put off the article that I really wanted to write that could make a difference to my career, put off uh, writing the long newsy email to a friend I wanted to stay in touch with, in favor of all the nonsense, what I eventually realized I had to do was actually cultivate a kind of tolerance for the discomfort of knowing that the decks weren't clear and move ahead anyway with the things that mattered the most, rather than first of all get into that situation like, okay, I've, I've tied up all those loose ends. Now, finally, I can focus. Because I think with every passing year, 
the the number of potential loose ends is sort of going up and up and up, and uh, it's going to get harder and harder ever to really tie them all up. Yeah, let's okay. So let's dive into this this idea, your idea of kind of clearing the decks a little bit because I, I was thinking about this in my experience doing podcast interviews like this. Um, there there are kind of two fun parts and one work part uh, for for me in my experience. And the first part is a fun part, which is like doing all the research and like reading and kind of learning about you know some new thing. Um, and then the final part, which is having the actual conversation, I find really fun in large part because I, I get to meet and chat with uh, people who I've kind of admired from afar. But the hard, the middle part is like the hard worky part for me, which is where you have to kind of take all the stuff you've read and then sort of synthesize it into into something that you can actually like deliver on. In a, and that's actually, a, it's, it's hard. I mean, it's gratifying at the end once you've done it, um, but it's very hard and kind of overwhelming in the beginning. And so when, when I was doing this for, for this podcast just a few days ago, um, I found myself like uh, I knew I had to kind of prep some questions for this, but I was, I was doing this classic thing that's almost like a cliche where I, I was like cleaning my office. I was like tidying my desk <laughs> and responding to some old emails. And like I was even I was even like or, organizing my my desktop on my computer because it had gotten yeah. cluttered. And, um, and then it just, you know, of course, it like eventually it hit me that this is you got a whole section in the book on like clearing the decks. This is exactly what we're talking about here. Right. So but. What really got me interested in that section, other than, you know, I resonated with that for sure. And I think a lot of people probably do. Um, but you have, the, I'm gonna quote you for a second because it's, it's worth kind of pulling out. You say, to, to deal with this dilemma of like getting lost in the minutia and never really having time for the, the big important stuff that really matters. You, you say that one of the things that's required is, quote, a kind of anti-skill, not the counterproductive strategy of trying to make yourself more efficient, but rather a willingness to resist such urges, to, to learn to stay with the anxiety of feeling overwhelmed without automatically trying to fit more in. So I love this in part because I really like this idea of an anti-skill. You know, I think when we think of skills, we think of more, it's like addition problems. What more can I do? What new productivity system can I add? Um, right. But tell me about this idea of anti-skills. Like wh where did you kind of, what's your thinking behind this? And, and what do you mean exactly by an anti-skill? Well, I guess now I think about it, this connects to a whole lot of stuff that I wrote in my previous book, The Antidote, which is uh, the subtitle there is Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. And that is about um, the benefits of learning to get friendlier with kind of uncertainty and sadness and insecurity and uh, negative emotions of, of various kinds. Um, and there again, it's this kind of it's this kind of non-doing, uh, which I guess connects up to all sorts of ideas in Taoism and, and other sort of Eastern philosophies. I'm thinking of the, that, that um, maybe this is the sort of best summary of it, is the phrase that's attributed to um, John Keats, negative capability. The, the ability to sort of stay with something instead of, uh, in that very sort of um, restless way, having to do something to get the, the, the feeling to go away. And, you know, I think that's mindfulness, I think it's at the core of uh, sort of the benefits of long-term talk therapy. I think it crops up all through um, life. Just this this notion that um, being able to sort of feel your feelings but not take dictation from them it, uh, uh, to the extent that you can do that, it's an incredible superpower, right? It's not just about becoming a some sort of imaginary Zen master sitting on a mountaintop with no desires. It's actually a better way to go about bringing your highest desires into reality in the world because, um, you know, you, you can sort of 
you're not being yanked around by incredibly arbitrary things like the number of unread emails that you have in your inbox. Now, any given person listening might be in a, a professional role where actually they do have to respond to a certain number, perhaps all the emails in their inbox. But then at least you can make that conscious decision that, you know, fulfilling the terms of your job right now is the most important thing in your life because it is helping you support a family or because you are saving up for uh, to, to buy a house or, you know, whatever it might be, you've still made a conscious choice. It's not always that you will not then do lots of little annoying stuff. You might decide that that was the right thing to do right now. But but it's conscious. Instead of being on this kind of treadmill of like, one day, one day, I'm going to get rid of all this stuff. And it's like, no, you're, you're not ever going to like get on top of everything in this context. That's not going to happen. So so drop that drop that thought <laughs> and focus instead on some sense of like what you really like to, to do and get done. Yeah. So skill is an interesting word because it, it, it's got all sorts of implications um, in, in terms of it's something you can sort of practice and get better at and improve over time and your ability will get better and maybe even the, it'll get a little bit easier. Um, so one question would be, do you think, do you think anti-skills follow the same sort of developmental model as traditional skills, like learning to play the piano or uh, in anything else? Like, do you, do you think it follows this kind of um, muscle practice metaphor where if you if you focus and you, and you practice it, it, you'll get better at it and it will get easier over time? Would you say that? Or do, or do you think, is, is that a false expectation? I mean, I have no real idea about whether what I'm talking about here is going to follow specific um, sort of uh, ways of, of developing it. I do think that sort of muscle metaphor is a is a useful one here as well in that it is this kind of strengthening of a capacity and if you want maybe i'm just saying that anti-skills are really one particular kind of um, regular skill it's the skill of uh remaining sort of present in in the in the presence of the kinds of emotions that we very easily use as a reason to go off and do something else to make ourselves feel better so i do think that you know, you can do it bit by bit. Uh, I've certainly found that in my own life when it comes to this sort of thing. You know, this idea that you should maybe like begin the working day with something that re you really care about for a couple of hours before you turn to uh, just sort of dealing with everything. That used to be extremely hard for me because I was thinking so much about like who was cross with me and which deadlines I was missing or what I'd left, what, what le I'd left undone. And yeah, it definitely gets easier and it gets easier partly because of this sort of this muscle metaphor does seem to get at something very deep in how we operate psychologically. And I think it also gets easier just because you get feedback, right? You see over and over again that, broadly speaking, like people really don't care as much as you thought they were going to about your deciding to do one thing with your time rather than another. Depends on your circumstance, of course. But like, People have their own troubles and are mainly mainly thinking about themselves. So <laughs> you can actually you're actually free to um, put aside some of their demands or probably more of them uh, for longer than you realise. Even if even if you know you're in a job where some level of demand is is, is uh, given. And like I am, if I sign up to write something to a deadline, I, I I better not miss the deadline or better not miss it too badly. But that's not the same as saying that um, you know every single thing that looks like a request that comes uh, across my desk has to be given more higher priority attention than, you know, 
some project I'm working on that doesn't have a deadline and that I really care about. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I wonder about this because for one thing, I use this metaphor all the time for thing. I mean, in my work as a therapist and a psychologist, it's, uh, it's a lot about kind of coming to terms with your difficult emotions and learning to sit with them instead of trying to get rid of them. Or, um, and so I, I naturally just gravitate to these sort of like athletic or muscle sort of metaphors. But, but the fact that it's so easy to slip into that, first of all, makes me kind of question that a little bit. Like, is that, I, I'm assuming <laughs> yeah, right. that's true, but I, I'm not actually totally sure. But then the other thing that gives me pause, and I'd be, I'd be curious about your experience with this, a lot of times I think that when like the, the first climbing, the first hill is like by far the hardest part. There, there, there's kind of a, it's some sort of like a law of diminishing returns curve where the first couple times you're willing to really just sit with your uncertainty and your anxiety about starting this big thing. It's kind of terrifying, but I, but I almost wonder if it's, it's mostly just because you've never done it before. And like, you only have to do it a few times to realize okay, like this is uncomfortable, but it's not horrific, you know, like it's not terrible. And so I almost wonder if the better skill is it's, it's not so much that you're building this new skill, like your muscles are progressively getting better on a sort of linear curve, but more, there was this big obstacle in your head. And by doing it a couple times, you just allowed that to kind of evaporate. And so I, what do you think? Does that? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know which side of this I'm going to come down on sort of, sort of, um, firmly in terms of how the the mind works but speaking from my experience yeah i think it is one of the things i'm sort of at pains to stress through this book and in other writing i've done the avoidance of certain kinds of discomfort sort of structures our life and in the context of time and time management i think it is the the avoidance of the discomfort of confronting our finitude the fact that we have to make tough choices have to decide that we're going to fail at certain things in order to succeed in others and and neglect certain things in order to give time to others but the whenever you can bring yourself to go through that discomfort, like it's always a huge anticlimax. It's it, it is not um, it, even though you're making this sort of um, you're in some sense you're sort of staring death in the face, right? You're making the most sort of existential uh, um, change that you can when you sort of step up to being uh, a finite human. But it doesn't feel that way. I mean, we're talking here about you know maybe you feel a bit queasy or you get started on a project you'd been avoiding, and it feels a little bit. Um, unpleasant boredom i think sometimes rises up to try to put you off from things like that but it's but it's like yeah you can cope and i think i speak from you know feeling like i, I think i probably spent a big chunk of my young adulthood sort of running my days basically to try to avoid certain feelings which it turns out are just not not that bad to feel so um yeah i think there's definitely a an, an illusion that comes from not having actually done it at all yeah and you know and it makes me actually question my use of the the muscle training metaphor because maybe that's part of what makes it intimidating for people they think it's going to be this huge kind of year long you know i'm gonna it's going to take me daily practice for months years decades in order for me to build up my emotional tolerance muscle or whatever and and really it's maybe it's easier than that actually not that it's easy but maybe it's it, yeah, like you said, it's a lot more anticlimactic than you than you or other people like us are sort of implying with with certain types of metaphors. Right, and I th yeah, I think that's right, and I also think there's a sort of a risk, especially if you maybe like read the jacket copy on my book, but not the book. <laughs> that there's a way of thinking about this. Where, it's good jacket copy. Let me just say that to the publishers. Excellent. But um, but there's a way of thinking about this that you might fall into, which is um, either that 
what's being advocated here is sort of living the rest of your life in a white knuckle. I'm going to seize every day. I'm going to seize every moment and get the most out of life, which is, I think, actually just very high stress and not um, and not a useful way to live at all. Um, but also that you thought that it might seem that we're talking about trying to trigger one huge permanent lasting epiphany where you're suddenly going to switch from being the kind of person who is trying to sort of get in control of things and do everything to the kind of person who lives in the full understanding that you can't do everything, that you have to make choices, that you have to experience discomfort. And, you know, that's certainly not my experience. I'm certainly not all the way there. Um, I just think that every degree to which you can push yourself to understand the, the truth of your relationship to time is another degree to which you're, you have a, uh, an interesting and meaningful and peaceful life. And, you know, so it's, again, it's like any, any little increment is, is better than nothing. Yeah. And, you know, the therapist in me goes and the, and you, you point out too, in the book that what's hard about that, about changing your relationship with time is it means you have to change your relationship with a lot of difficult emotions, right? Being willing to kind of confront those and actually, Stop seeing them as, as a threat that you have to get rid of or avoid, but something you can actually um, live with and alongside, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, as you say that, I think you're just in, you're speaking casually, you say confront, but I think, yeah, if we talked about that more, we might want to say it's not even that adversarial, right? It's mm, this kind of right. idea of just letting them in and um, yeah. being that. Exactly. I love the, the, I think it's Elizabeth Gilbert in her book, uh, Big Magic on Creativity. Mm. She talks about how, you sort of it's a, it's a sort of um, um an image or whatever that that you're sort of on a road trip and fear is allowed to ride in the car on the road trip you just don't ever let it um take the steering wheel it, it's a kind of a in some ways a sort of a silly image but i think that's what i like about it it sort of diffuses this whole thing it's like yes. yeah all this stuff is going to come up and they're these kind of slightly irritating house guests uh, are going to be around and that's fine you know whatever uh, they, 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 then you're not going to kick them out and you're also not going to um, hand over the ownership deeds to your house to them my favorite part of her metaphor there is is the, the very visceral idea that if you try to throw the, the the monster the fear monster out the window you are going to let go of the steering wheel and you're going to end up crashing too which goes back to your point <laughs> right. of like backfiring yes. right yes yes exactly great yeah um so you you know the word kind of existential has already come up a few times, but you, it's it's one of the most satisfying parts of, of reading your book is that, and I, I sort of know the trick. I, I knew that it wasn't a, a book about productivity tips and, and efficiency going in, but still it was, there, you just have a lot of these like little zinger existential thunderbolts throughout the book <laughs> that really kind of make you step back. And one of them for me was you say, um, when we claim that we have time, what we really mean is that we expect it. Now, I think this is, expectations are something I think a lot about and I'm trying to think a lot more deeply about. Um, so let's let's take a minute and talk about expectations because I, they're, they're one of those things that, um, like death is another one, that, that it's one of these themes in your book that, that is <laughs> like pervasive, even though you don't necessarily talk about them all the time. Um, but in fact, you could, you could make the case, I think, that the whole problem with traditional time management techniques is the expectation that time is a thing we can manipulate and control, right? This is one of your big points, which is you illustrate ends up backfiring. So, so talk about a little bit about, first of all, how do you think about the relationship specifically between expectations and control? I mean, that's a big question, but you can take that however you want. 
Yeah, let me see. First of all, let me give uh, credit for the, one of the lines you quoted right at the beginning there, is, uh, as I say in the book, is from a blogger called David Kane, who writes a blog mm. called Raptitude, who's, who's really done some great stuff on this idea of like what our real relationship to our daily time is. I think that um, expectation gets to the heart of it because, yeah, we, we modern people, and it, it has arisen at various points through history, but it has not been a universal that we think of time as this thing that is somehow separate from us. Maybe we visualize it as a kind of a yardstick or a conveyor belt or something, you know, that we have to keep up with or fill or um, sort of keep keep ahead of. And that whole kind of notion that time is something separate uh, would have kind of made very little sense to, as I say in the mm. book, for example, early early medieval peasants in the English countryside, just for example. Lots of other different people at different places and times for whom life was a matter of what anthropologists call task orientation, right? You just you just lived, right? Time was the medium in which your day unfolded. And if you were really pushed, you could um, compare how long it took to do something to something else. You know, you could say that... that uh, cooking the dinner took as long as milking the cows but you couldn't really go any further than that you couldn't you didn't have this sense of a of a abstract timeline or a clock face that you were sort of lining things up against and feeling tormented by through the day we now do and then we fall into this notion that we can sort of dictate how it goes and that's where expectation comes in right because you 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 make a plan for the day and it doesn't just feel when you do that like you're sort of stating your ideal intentions for how you might use your influence over reality. It feels like you're sort of somehow trying to kind of corral the day into into going that way. You're exerting some kind of control over future unfolding time. When, you know, to get a little bit spiritual guru about it, you just are the moment uh, and, and, and th- that time doesn't really exist um, in any meaningful sense and you don't have it you don't have any moment until that moment itself arrives. So I think this is a source of constant stress, especially for people with a family background of being compulsive planners, like like I am. I can talk about that if you want. Um, because you're you're always trying to feel like you know what the how the day is going to go, or how much work you're going to get done, or how you're going to drive yourself to reach this many um, checked off items on the to do list. And you're, you're seeking a feeling of security and control, but it's absolutely built in that you can never actually have it. You can make a good guess depending on your circumstances and how predictable your life is, but you don't ever know that a grand piano won't fall out of the window of the next apartment building that you walk past, right? I mean, and that's just the ludicrous extreme example. Everything, anything could happen at any moment. And so I think because we because we have this sort of expectation, this demand from the future that it can't ever fulfil because it's in the future, that is a sort of recipe for constant anxiety. I, I, I love the quote from uh, Joseph Goldstein, the meditation teacher, who's, who says that what we forget is that a plan is just a thought, right? It's absolutely fine to make a plan. That can be useful. It can help you make decisions from moment to moment through the course of the day or the week or you know whatever scale you made the plan on. But if you think you're somehow like doing something to the future when you make that plan like then you should think again because that's just that's just not how it works 
Yeah, you know, it's funny when I was reading this section um, of your book that the image that came into my head when you were talking about time and how we, we have this very instrumental view of time, like it's like you said, like it's this thing we can manipulate. Um, the, the image that popped in my head was like, it's, it's sort of like we're fish who have decided to try and live out of water. And so we're, we're like living on the beach and trying to figure out yes. how to, you know, get, get water to work the way we want, um, which is really hard when you don't, you just have like flippers and you're on the sand because really our natural habitat is in the water where you don't even think about it. Right. It's just, it just is the, like you said, the medium that we're in. Um, so I don't know. That was a funny, like kind of image that, that crossed my mind. But yeah, no, I think that... it's a great image. And this kind of image comes up, you know, in, in some of the writing about time being like a river and, and, and things like that. And if you want to push it to one level further, you could say, like, it's not just that we're like fish in water. It's like we are the water and and um, trying to sort of get out of what we are is is completely absurd but but yes we're always trying to do it to sort of maneuver ourselves into a position of um being sort of on top of our life or or out front of our life or something like that when we just are um the moment yeah yeah so given our um tendency would be a nice word to to sort of use expectations almost like kind of a defense mechanism to make us feel like we have more control than we actually do um do you think is there such a thing as healthy expectations or is that just like an oxymoron like are they always a, some kind of an attempt at control like unreasonable control in which case we should what we should really be doing is just sitting with that anxiety or or do you think there is such a thing as a, a reasonable or sort of healthy level of expectation i mean i i think that there can be i don't think i i do think that this is a kind of um I, what's the mathematical phrase like asymptotic do you, is that am I using that word correctly it's kind of a that I do think that sort of having no expectations would be in some sense the ideal state uh, I quote in the book uh Jiddu Krishnamurti the modern spiritual teacher who who um described his sort of secret of his life as being that uh, he doesn't didn't mind what happened um which I think if you really truly could embody that then it would be an extremely peaceful, but also very potentially active and uh, and uh, effective way to live. I don't think that means that all expectations are bad. I think that um, it's plain that we do have some influence over how our time unfolds, right? So, so having some expectations about how you're going to use that time is totally reasonable. And I have them. And every day I'm making lists of things I want to try to get through by the end of the day. And on some level, I expect... Uh, not to be called away from that by some unfolding crisis. And, you know, uh, occasionally that doesn't happen because the, I have to go and, like, something happens with our childcare arrangement or something and I'm and, I, and the, the day's gone wrong compared to my expectations and I do feel some kind of um, tension about that. But I just think it's a question of not letting that, for me anyway, it's, not a, it's a question of not letting that turn into some idea that eventually with enough self-discipline and the right time management techniques this is going to turn into a I'm finally going to get somewhere where I where my expectations are sort of very reliably turn into reality and it's not being sort of led along by that kind of carrot that you know you never actually get to that's that's the important thing it's not that having some loosely held expectations for the day as a way of organizing your activities is somehow is somehow wrong it's just that idea that like 
you create this ever more brittle way of being in the world where if your expectations are frustrated, that's some huge and terrible problem. Okay, so you, th there's another section that I, I really found kind of thought-provoking, or a couple sections actually in the book, um, but there's one called Minding Your Own Business, which is about sort of the dangers of spending too much time in sort of mental time travel, you know, uh, dwelling on the past or worrying about the future, since ultimately these things, we, we have extremely limited amounts of control over the future, none over the past. But, um, and, and then a chapter or two later, there's, there's another nice section about what you call the paradox of trying to live in the moment, which is you say you're so fixated on trying to make the best use of your time, in this case for some later outcome, not, not for some later outcome, but for an enriching experience of life right now, that it obscures the experience itself. And you use that great story from um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance when, he, when he's looking over Crater Lake, like try, really trying to relish the moment, which of course makes it impossible. Um, so, so where does that leave us? Like we can't, we can't spend too much time in the past. We can't spend too much time in the future. And when we try to spend time in the present, that backfires too. Like <laughs> where, do, uh, where do we go from there, I guess? <laughs> yeah, it feels like a, an irresolvable dilemma. I think it isn't irresolvable. I think that um, what all these things have in common, well, the future and the present anyway, uh, the, way, the way things go wrong with that is the attempt the real focus on like using time in this instrumental way right so i don't think that using the moment for some purpose uh normally in the future but it could sort of be in the present too um i don't think that is the only way to relate to time we clearly have to do a lot of it and you know our lives wouldn't work if we never used you know 20 minutes to load the dishwasher and clean the kitchen you, you're not going to want to necessarily do all these things purely for their own sake but there is a role for the orientation toward life that finds the value just in having the experiences that you're having in this moment and that therefore you know I think you, you, there's a sort of argument jumping to a different part of the book but there's a sort of argument for wasting time if you understand properly what's being discussed here because, you know, if, if, if how you define wasted time, as our culture, I think, does and increasingly does, is any time that does not serve some particular future benefit, and in the worst case, you know, only serves the making of money, uh, but, but anything else as well. Like, if, if your definition of, of, of wasted time is anything that doesn't do that, then actually you've made being truly present and wasting time completely synonymous with each other. And at that point, it sort of becomes, I think, almost obligatory to spend some part of your day doing something that you just do for itself alone. What one of the philosophers I quote in the book, Kieran Setia, calls an, an atelic activity, one that doesn't have a telos, a, a place it's going to. When I think about my own life, I'm sure you've got examples, right? I mean, I until COVID, I sang in a choir every um, every week, and um, hopefully it's restarting soon. And I, And I, you know... There was literally no chance whatsoever that I was ever going to start to become professionally acclaimed for my for my singing, <laughs> um, you know. And that's what part of what made it enjoyable. It's like the same for playing the um, piano that I have at home, right? It's it, it's a release from pressure, absolutely because it, it can only my my skills are such that they can only be for my pleasure in that moment and actually i i and the other thing that i really springs to my mind is swimming obviously you can do that to stay fit and maybe i do on some level but i'm i'm not a strong swimmer i just that there's a rare time in the, the day because i do try to do it almost every day when um when i really do feel like this is done for itself 
and if it had no downstream effect whatsoever, I would still be glad that I'd done it. And I think, you know, there's a role for that in life, even if we can't build our entire lives around it. You've got a, a nice section at the back of the book called a uh, very practical section on 10 tools for embracing your finitude, um, where you walk through kind of some practical um, strategies, tips for, for, for implementing some of the bigger ideas and concepts in the book. So let me ask you, you're the, the author, um, and clearly a lot of these are, are at least influenced by personal experience. So all other things being equal, if you could only recommend like one of these to people, um, which one do you think you would you would pull out? Oh, wow. That's interesting. Um, uh, so you're, you're, you're forcing me into a limit, a constraint that I didn't even, that I deliberately, uh, exactly. deliberately um, didn't make myself, didn't hold myself to. We're going to um, see if you can walk the walk. <laughs> I mean, okay, here's a, maybe this is going to count as a slight cheat, but I think two of these ideas can be sort of summed up under the single heading of um, learning to do one thing at a time. And... Uh, you see how I managed to sort of like, like, not quite decide on one and keep my options open. But I do think that um, <laughs> forms of task management and forms more generally of approach to life that really hold you to the idea of doing one or at most a very limited number of things at once are incredibly powerful here because they, they, um, they force you to sort of feel that feeling of discomfort about all the things that are not being done at that time. So um, I give the example in that appendix of an extremely simple way of doing this with to-do lists. Others, will, Other people will be familiar with ways of doing this with Kanban boards and things like that. But, you know, if you just keep two to-do lists, one of which is as long as you like, so you add everything to, and a second one that you only allow to have five slots on it or three slots, and you, and and the rule is that you move tasks from the long list to the short list, but you can't add a an extra one until one of the slots has been freed up by doing it. You see what I mean? Um, that's just yep. that that's just an ex extremely simple way of of making conscious the fact that you are always only doing a very few things. You don't have the capacity to do multiple things at once. In I mean, there are exceptions depending on how you define multitasking, but basically. And this just sort of makes it very evident to you, obliges you to choose each time you add a new task from, you know, the 300 you might have on your list, what actually matters most to do in that moment, and gradually cultivates this feeling of like, okay, I live in a world of theoretically infinite obligations and opportunities, but I am not uh, an infinite god who can do them all. So what I do is I just pick one and I do it and I pick another one and I do it. And there's something very calming about that as well, I find, in the long run, because you sort of realize, oh, I also can't be expected to do more <laughs> than, than this, right? So if you're the kind of person like me who um, sort of hears the voice of inner obligation saying like, no, you've got to get through X, Y and Z uh, today. Well, if that's just literally impossible... Then, then I haven't got to, right? I mean, nobody's got to do something that is in fact impossible to do. So um, there's a great sort of liberation in just in just seeing what you're always doing, because if you, which is one thing at a time, because if you don't do that and you sort of imagine that what you're doing is attending to 20 different things at once, what really happens is that you just bounce between each one when another of them, when each one becomes uncomfortable or difficult or awkward, you just go off to another one. And so you never 
make progress on any of them. And if you can sort of hold your feet to the fire a little bit, uh, like this, or through many other techniques and methods, some of which I talk about, you know, I think it's just a great way of cultivating that capacity for tolerating the discomfort that we were speaking about. Yeah, there's so much, um, there's some interesting paradox in there though, right? Because th this made me think about, um, this made me think of Cal Newport's uh, Deep Work. And totally, book yeah. And, and I mentioned him a few which, times, which is, but he's definitely, he's definitely yeah. on this, uh, yeah. But it, what's interesting to me about it is that it's, it's a very, the idea is that you, by sort of deliberately like forcing yourself and constraining yourself to do one thing at a time, which is kind of, which is effortful and, and almost sort of, it's not exactly instrumental, but it's got this like tightening the grip a little bit yeah. that's feel to it, that somehow that though in the long run leads to calm and, and freedom, like kind of deep freedom and liberation. Um, I, I don't. I, I don't know. I'm not expecting an answer at all. But like, do you, do you have a sense for that? Like, is that maybe it's not? A, maybe that's a false dichotomy. Maybe it, it feel. Yeah, I mean, I think all that I would say that might resolve the paradox at least a bit is, it, it is just coming home to how things actually already are, right? I mean, it is, mm. it it does create. It is an effort. There is discipline here, but it isn't um, the. It isn't the discipline of trying to, f it's not about trying to force something with respect to time so much as it is, for me anyway, primarily an act of seeing what is already going on, which is that at any one moment you are attending to one thing. And in, again, with a few specific exceptions, basically that's what's always the case. And if you feel like you're focusing on two things, you're actually just um, flipping very quickly uh, between them. So... So it does take. There is an F, There is a certain kind of tightening the, uh, tightening the vice or whatever idea there, but it is just sort of bringing you back, emotionally and psychologically, to something that in your material reality, already was. And, and I think that's different than trying to get into these weird struggles with time, where you're sort of telling yourself you're going to, be five times more productive than you were, last week or something. Um, it, it's just. It's just seeing, seeing what is. I think does that address the paradox a little bit? Yeah, yeah. lovely. Yeah. No, I, I, I think so. Our, the fact that it feels like a paradox is just a framing effect. It's right. It's the fact that we're we're the fish out right. of the water, like looking at this weird thing that is water when it shouldn't look weird at all. That's our normal state of being. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's. I want to zoom out from your book a little bit and talk a little bit about uh, self help as a genre. Um, so as someone who writes what might generally fall into the category of self help, um, that's where Amazon puts your book anyway. Yep. <laughs> what What are What are some of your? Do you have any? What's one of your favorite self help books? Do you have a favorite self help book? I mean, I have favorite books that spring to mind. I don't know whether they are sort of or who would categorize them as self help necessarily. Um, yeah, I mean, so I love a lot of various books that you know, are written by therapists, basically. So I love the work of James Hollis, who is a, a Jungian therapist and who has written a number of books that um, have really influenced me, including one called Finding Meaning in the Second Half of Life, which I don't necessarily love the title because it makes it sound like you've maybe failed to find meaning in the first half of your life or something, but that's not the point. It's about the changing nature of meaning through uh, life and as I sort of got into my 40s um, I maybe I'm not mathematically in the second half of life yet if I'm really lucky but um, <laughs> but you get into that sort of moment when um, some sort of change feels feels important and that book was very important to me then uh, that specific moment a few years ago um, 
the other thing that came from like writing a column every week about self-help related stuff for the guardian for years was that actually a number of books that i might have dismissed as kind of cheesy had mm. really wise messages i mean feel the fear and do it anyway that old classic is um <laughs> is like bang on all the way through it's it's totally it's totally right and you know as a Brit and perhaps as a man and a number of other things, I would have like probably not been seen dead reading it on the tube or something. <laughs> but, um, but kind of that, that's my, that's my problem to deal with because it turns out <laughs> that uh, Susan Jeffers is a really wise author. Right. And um, I highly, I highly recommend um, that and her other books, including Embracing Uncertainty, which is another one that, that uh, really made a difference for me. That's the that's the answer I was looking for. What are the, what are those cheesy self help books that actually are are really resonating? Right, right. So uh, while we're on the topic of self help, um, and someone who who writes about again, sort of broadly speaking, I think you could put a lot of your your work in in, in self help. Um, wh but what I'm curious, like, what do you see as some of the fundamental problems with self help as it's typically presented, um, or or sort of put another way? Like if you were, let's say you were starting a publishing company and your whole mission was to publish high quality, genuinely helpful self-help books, what would you, what would be your like speech to your, your team of editors in terms of, you know, what to look for and what to definitely rule out um, for this, this new company? That's a great question. I, I'd love to do that. Um, I mean, the sort of contentless answer is I want stuff that works and not stuff that doesn't work. <laughs> I want, I don't want stuff that, um exists sort of primarily or at least functionally to cause people to buy the author's next book but um but rather to sort of put the author out of business as it were by um by uh by 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 working one thing that really springs to mind there and that is my main sort of issue with the genre and how I try to interact with it is to get exactly the right um to get the right relationship to like the author's own state of psychological development and growth right because I'm always I've always thought about this like on the one hand like anyone who's under any illusion that I have a sort of perfectly organized life that I, and I live with like beautiful awareness of my own mortality at all moments and make every right decision and never get uh, irritated with anything would be completely wrong but at the same time I do want to say that I have something meaningful and useful to, to pass along it's not just like oh look like aren't we all terrible I'm I'm just I've got no answers or solutions. And I have found, in terms of people I've been inspired by as well, that actually these things are not the... Con there's not a contradiction here. It's this kind of... In Jungian and spiritual circles, it's sometimes this idea of like the wounded healer or something, right? It's this, mm. it's this idea that wisdom, uh, if I have any to pass along, doesn't come from having sort of figured something out and then made my life perfect and now I will graciously dispense it to you uh to you mere mortals it's more just that I have maybe spent a little bit more time thinking about these things that we struggle with and um you know reading into them and 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 talking to people about them it might even be that I've struggled with the ones I write about much more than the average person right you know that the the hard one experience might come from being a total kind of um, neurotic when it comes, uh, at least historically in my life, when it comes to trying to use time well. So I would, I'm always deeply impressed by the kind of book where I really feel that I learned something true and wise and I had a full sense of the author's like 
flaws and normalness and imperfection. Um, and this, I don't, I still can't quite express it, as maybe you can tell. <laughs> but it's, but it is actually the best kind of wisdom. It's not a compromise. It's not like, well, I wish I could hear from someone who li lives a perfect life. It's like I'd rather hear from the person who doesn't. And yet, not just so we can both wallow in our, in our problems, but because they really do have something to offer. It's funny when I asked, uh, I asked a similar question of our mutual um, friend, Jesse Single, and, and I asked him about self-help and he said generally he doesn't read self-help, but he said something to the effect of, I like cranky self-help, <laughs> <laughs> sort of self-help with warts and, um, you know, that isn't afraid to kind of be a little rough around the edges. And I really like that. That's kind of, that's kind of stuck with me. Um, but let's, There's okay. a great quote in um, David Brooks's recent book, The Second Mountain, where he, he, he mm. quotes somebody else saying that writers are like beggars showing other beggars where we have found bread or something. And I really, I really like that because that's, that's sort of like, you know, hey, this, this was useful for me. Maybe it'd be useful for you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I've, I've got kind of, um, I had one more question for you, but, but now I have two. So let's, we'll kind of home stretch here. Um, but you're, when you mentioned the James Hollis book about finding meaning in the second half of life, it, it made me, and I've been, I admit I've been shuffling through your book to find this quotation, <laughs> but it made me think of a, there, there's a point um, in the book where you quote one of my absolute favorite writers, interestingly, of both fiction and nonfiction. I can't think of anyone else who, who writes both fiction and nonfiction that I love both, but it's Marilyn Robinson. Um, and she says, she's got this line that you quote in the book, which is, the spirit of the times is one of joyless urgency. We spend our lives preparing ourselves and our children to be means to inscrutable ends that are utterly not our own. Um, so as I, I don't know, as I read it, a, a lot of your book is sort of about, I don't know, resisting sort of this pull to spend our lives like this and this kind of joyless urgency. Um, and, and in large part, we do that by cultivating sort of a better relationship with, with time and with our own sort of finitude, like you say. But, and I know this is like an impossibly big question, but uh, how do you, how do we go about like discovering these more kind of authentic ends or paths to our life? And, and to give it a little more specificity, I'm wondering specifically, do you think, how do you think of this? Like, do you think finding a more authentic path forward in our lives is, is it something akin to like a skill we have to kind of build and practice? And as we get better at it, um, we will get closer to that. Or is it more like one of these things where, it's already there, but we just have all this interference that we need to sort of get rid of and it will become more apparent as we sort of throw off a, a lot of these kind of misconceptions and delusions. I don't know, maybe, and maybe that's a false dichotomy. I have, I have no idea, but how do you think about this? I, the, Marilyn Robinson's sort of challenge to finding our own ends. Um, what, do you, what do you make of that? I mean, I'm always, I've always been attracted to this idea that is in... Uh, to mention it again, Jungian psychology, but also in other many, many other um, traditions, that they're kind of th there is some path for for us, and that it's uh, that it's up to us to to discover it. Um, uh, that it sort of is pre-existing in, in some in some way. That we, uh, I think, that can be overinterpreted. I don't have any reason to believe that there is like one job that uh, a given person ought to be doing, and that it's their life purpose or certainly not like one person with whom they could have a fulfilling lifelong relationship or anything like that. I think what this speaks to is that that there is, and I do believe this, sort of, there are parts of us that sort of know what is the right direction for us that are maybe beyond simple, rational consideration, ego, consciousness, whatever you want to 
call it. So I mentioned in the book this question that James Hollis um, refers to a lot about asking whether a given life choice of a given life choice, not, you know, which option here will make me happiest, but but will this option that I'm considering, will it enlarge me or diminish me? Which I always find an incredibly powerful and very practical question, right? It's not just a sort of um, uh, uh, sort of abstract philosophical one. You often are in a situation where you can intuit. Um, I don't think this needs to be magic. I think it's just parts of the mind that we're not always completely conscious of. You can intuit whether a certain direction that might be difficult is actually the kind of difficulty that you're going to benefit from and grow from. And the obvious example is like either in a job or a relationship, right? There are often kind of um, difficulties. And you usually do know when you think about enlargement or diminishment, whether um, you're in a relationship where the difficulties are just sort of part of growing as people and and getting uh, sort of better being human or whether you are in some kind of really screwed up or abusive relationship and you should like leave as soon as possible. I think people do understand the answer to that. But if you ask happy or not happy, it's going to be a lot harder because actually it's often mm. much happier in the short term to not make big changes um, or to make big changes if you're the kind of person who is more accustomed to doing that as a way of escaping difficult emotions. <laughs> so um, I think that uh, I think we need a certain kind of humility towards the world and ourselves when it comes to asking these questions but I don't think that needs to turn into a kind of um, my life purpose is out there and if I haven't got a specific if I haven't found it exactly correctly then I'm uh, then I'm living a, a meaningless life mm. so at the very beginning of your book before even the introduction you you started off with two quotes um, the first of which comes from Douglas Harding which is it's the very last thing, isn't it, we feel grateful for, having happened. You know, you needn't have happened. You needn't have happened. But you did happen. So let me just ask you, can you talk a little bit about why that quote is meaningful to you and why you chose to open the whole book with it? Yeah, I mean, partly this is just a, a sort of um, homage to the fact of how much I love Douglas Harding's work in general, um, <laughs> the, the Headless Way. I strongly recommend uh on having no head, his his short book to uh, anyone yeah. who hasn't encountered that. This specific quote, I think what it does is it really resets the perspective or my perspective, um, and and re returns focus to like the sheer fact that we have a bit of time, right? I think we're so we have a tendency to go through our lives thinking that the shortness of life is a terrible insult, that uh, on some level we're, we're entitled to internal life or something. And uh, so it's, it's really awful that we only have limited time. And I take that um, quote to be saying, you know, you only have limited time, but like you could vastly more easily have never had any at all. Like the hypothetical people who have never been born, um, literally infinitely <laughs> outnumber the, um, the, uh, the ones who are and it and again you know that just returns me sometimes only briefly but it does return me to a sense of gratitude for just like where I am now not not some beautiful scenario or rural setting where I expect to be you know in a certain number of weeks or something like that just like this because as long as you're not in sort of intense chronic pain or being tortured or something uh, in this moment it's kind of amazing that, that this is right here you know what I mean yeah and it, you know it's an, it, 
another one of those themes that kind of subtly runs throughout your book, but is not always called out explicitly is like humility or, or gratitude. You know, you really get a powerful sense from that. Um, and it's, it, well, I think you met, actually, I think you mentioned this book in the, in your book too, which is, um, Seneca's on the shortness of life, um, yeah. which is this great little tiny, it's almost a pamphlet. It's not even a, a book necessarily, right. but it was a letter originally. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. It's a long letter. But I, for the last few years, um, probably the last almost 10 years now, I have made it a point to every year on New Year's or the few years at, for few days after New Year's, I re, I read that book again. So I read it every single year, and it's um, it's 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 just profoundly you know it seems almost morbid. Well, why are you going to read a book about the, the shortness of life? You know, every, every single year <laughs> seems a little excessive, but the the sense of like gratitude and calm um, that comes from from doing that, from really letting yourself get knocked over the head by the fact that we have. Um, you know that there's that Mary Oliver quote that, that this one wild and precious life. Um, yeah, it's just profound. Like it's it's such a it's such a power, relatively simple but powerful thing to do to to kind of recollect that. I think so. Um, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Well, Oliver, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much um, for taking the time to to come on and chat. Where where can people go if they want to learn more about you and the book and your other kind of writing? Well, the book is 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. Uh, it's out in early August. I would uh, be enormously grateful for pre-orders and orders that, that anywhere you would normally get a book. My website is oliverberkman.com, and there's more about the book and my other writing there. Yeah, and the, if, if it's not clear already, I loved, absolutely loved the book, um, and I've just like I've, I've enjoyed your other books. And I'm a big fan of your newsletter, too. You're, you, you do a weekly, a weekly essay um, that's always really, really thought-provoking for me, so I would recommend people sign up for that as well thanks so much and this has been a great conversation i I really enjoyed it hey everyone thanks so much for listening to this episode of minds and mics if you haven't done so already i'd appreciate it if you took one minute to give us a review on apple podcasts it helps out a lot and if you've already done that please consider sharing minds and mics with a friend or family member you think would enjoy it as always thank you for continuing to support the show and we'll see you next time